As we come to this time now in our uh, worship to study the Word of God together, take your Bibles and have them at the ready. Uh, have a finger in Galatians, also have a finger in, uh, in the book of Acts, because <clears throat> we're going to be jumping around a little bit. Uh, and get your thinking caps on, because uh, we're in a section of our introduction that demands a little bit of our, or more of our thinking than usual. You'll see what I mean in just a few moments. Um, in the first part of our introduction, we considered the genre of letter in the New Testament and how it was a personal and powerful way for the first century writers to convey their thoughts. But in the case of the New Testament, and particularly Galatians, it is, it's ultimately God's thoughts that he had Paul write through the mysterious and supernatural leading of the Holy Spirit, as you all know. God used the genre of letter to communicate his truth to us in a relatable way. And we're reminded just how relatable, then, the Bible is when it uses letter to convey biblical truth to future generations of God's people, to you and to me. The letter is one of many genres that the Bible uses to show just how living and active the Word is. Now, more than that, we might also see the real-life events that are part of the context of God's Word and in which Paul wrote are also living and active and relatable, and they occupy our attention now in this second part. Many in the church... I think are used to seeing the 27 books of the New Testament as somewhat of a cold list that is divorced from their lives, as if the Word of God were some fossil the, with petrified words from an ancient time that, that has become at best only emblematic of our faith. Now, those Christians might as well put the Bible under glass and admire it because they're sure never going to read it much less consulted. Why? Well, because it's hard work, not to mention boring, and not nearly sensational enough to them in their spirit. But nothing could be further from the truth. These letters were not written in a vacuum, beloved, but out of real-life contexts, and many out of the need of the moment. So Paul wrote Philemon, for example, to his brother in the faith about a very delicate matter of receiving back his runaway slave Onesimus, who had been saved under Paul's preaching and become actually Paul's trusted helper. Philemon is a perfect example, really, of a recommendation letter that accomplishes its task, and the context is not strange to us at all. Neither is the context in 1 Corinthians in which Paul answers important theological questions that the Corinthians wrote to him about. And if any of you ever had a letter-writing ministry, well, then you know that context very well. The writer of the Hebrews makes a valiant attempt to win back straying believers, and even those who were on the verge of converting, but had, had become skeptical and were in danger of apostatizing, because they were receiving persecution from their religious leaders and friends and family. Now, some of us know all too well the sting associated with the persecution of family and friends. Seven churches in Revelation were real churches. And Jesus' warning to six of them was just as real. 
Now, we could go on, but I think you get the idea. The New Testament letter, letters teach theological truths in real-life situations of first-century churches, and they were written either to encourage or rebuke or praise and thanks or give confirmation or to inform and instruct. And churches today that face similar kinds of situations will find the New Testament letters very practical and very relatable, and I'm sure we will as well. In fact, the letter to the Galatians is no exception. It captures a close, personal relationship Paul had with these folks. He led them to Christ. He discipled them. He established churches for them. They were his spiritual children. We see Paul's pastor's heart in his letter, in his emotional appeals, and how passionate and jealous for the Galatians he really was. His own personal signature at the end is his impassioned reminder. The only letter that would be more intensely passionate than this one is 2 Corinthians chapters 10 to 13, which some have said, quote, is the most intense, revealing, and emotional of all Paul's writings, end quote. We can be sure that the urgent and serious tone with which Paul writes is because of his great love for them. And he had a great love for them. He cared for their spiritual well-being. He guarded them against spiritual dangers, also that he might keep them pure, a chaste bride that he may one day present to Christ. So with that said, we consider a number of important real-life aspects that make up the background of this letter and any letter, such as the author, the recipients, the date, and the occasion. And those elements are necessary to know as much as possible because they're, well, they're part of the context I can illustrate that with a bit of text that says this, quote, You would be much amused with the animals round the ranch. The most thoroughly independent and self-possessed of them is a large white pig, which we have christened Maud. She goes everywhere at her own will. She picks up scraps from the dogs who bay dismally at her, but know that They have no right to kill her, and then she eats the green alfalfa hay from the two milk cows who live in big corrals with the horses. One of the dogs has has just had a litter of puppies. You would love them with their little wrinkled noses and squeaky voices, end quote. Without knowing who wrote this text and to whom it was written and when and the reason, you know nothing other than the fact that the writer spotted a pig carrying on, carrying on with other animals in its own unique way at a ranch. But, if, but it, 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 it could come from a big city developer reporting to his firm in a very sarcastic way to say, hey, there's nothing special going on here in this place and we can take it by eminent domain and put up a great high rise. Or from a farmer trying to convince his friend in the big city of how beautiful farm living is. Or an inmate whose cell window faces a farm and writes to his wife about the one thing that keeps him sane as he does hard time. If I told you that it's from a postcard, well then you would know that the writer's on vacation and sending some news of his activities to family back home. 
if it had the word Dear Diary at the top, well, then you know it wasn't part of some correspondence at all. Actually, if you must know, the letter was written on January 29th, 1901, addressed to Darling Little Ethel, and is one of many letters that Theodore Roosevelt sent to his kids that show the real family man that he was. Context is everything. Now, admittedly, we cannot always know with certainty when and where, by whom and to whom, when it comes to the New Testament letters, especially if the letter doesn't provide that information on purpose. The book of Hebrews, I think, is a case in point. It gives no indication who the author is or who the recipients are or where both were located at the time of writing. The reference at the end of the letter, those from Italy greet you, is ambiguous. And we have to guess as to when it was written. But it becomes obvious upon reading this letter that the Holy Spirit didn't include in this letter those things because it didn't affect the meaning of the letter. We can know the main problem in Hebrews. It's a common problem that plagues many churches in every era. It's obvious that the writer shows concern for his church and that its context was real, as real as as the problem they faced. And it provides important and timeless doctrinal information for us. But Hebrews is a rare case. Many times we we, we do know these important aspects of New Testament letters. At times we may have to guess or make an educated guess as to the finer points of them, but we have enough. The letter to the Galatians is such a letter. It is necessary to know who wrote, why he wrote, and to whom, because, as we'll see in, our, in, in a moment, that information informs our understanding of his argument. And we can know these aspects of his letter, even though we have to guess on some of the finer points. So, let's begin with authorship. But we don't have to spend much time here. We know conclusively that Paul wrote Galatians. He identifies himself right at the beginning. Paul, an apostle. And there's no good reason to doubt that he wrote it. In fact, nearly all New Testament scholars agree, and some of them even say Pauline authorship is indisputable. Why should it matter? Well, because a good portion of this letter deals with the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship. And it also gives important biographical information about him. So to suggest that the writer was anyone else, well, it would conflict with those major portions of the letter. Next is the destination and recipients. Now, this is not as easy to establish as you might think. What do you mean? Paul tells us right at verse 2, to the churches of Galatia, how much clearer can you be? Well, not so fast. What did Paul mean by Galatia? Hmm. Yes, there's actually two possibilities. One possibility is an ethnic group known as Galatians. They were the descendants of the Gauls, a Celtic people who migrated in the 3rd century BC to northern Asia Minor, that we know today as modern Turkey, and established a kingdom there. The Gauls were Galatians. They reigned approximately 300 years in that location, and when their king died in 25 BC, the Romans 
took their country over for the empire. At that point, it became known as the province of Galatia, the Roman province of Galatia. And as was their practice with conquered peoples, the Romans allowed the Gauls to stay in the north and practice their religion and their customs as long as they didn't cause any disturbance to the empire. That Paul wrote to these people, the Gauls in the north, was the prevailing view of the church from the patristic age, 3rd century A.D., to about the late 1800s. It's called the North Galatian Theory. When in Acts 16.26, Luke writes that Paul and company passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, Proponents of the North Galatian theory believe Luke is talking about the Gauls in North Africa. I'm sorry, in, in, uh, in Asia Minor, North Galatia. But is he? Well, why should we be skeptical? Well, it seems unlikely that Paul went there. That's why. The northern part of this region was very mountainous and many, many miles from the major trade routes that Paul and company restricted themselves to, Paul would have, have veered off the beaten path and, and, and traveled many, many miles to get to this particular place or this region of Galatia. Did he? And would he have hiked through miles of difficult mountainous terrain at high elevations while suffering an obvious illness? that he mentions in Galatians chapter 4.13. Well, it seems unlikely that he would have. And there's something else. A record of any place or person from this extreme northern part of Galatia is strangely absent in the New Testament. It's strange because Paul mentions individuals in pl and places from just about every one of his locations in his missionary journeys. Yet we know no one and no place in particular from the north. J.B. Lightfoot, uh, who wrote at the turn of the 20th century, so 1900, he was a champion of the North Galatian theory. He admits this, quote, It's strange that while we have more or less acquaintance with all the other important churches of St. Paul's founding, with Corinth and Ephesians, with Philippi and Thessalonica, not a single name of a person or place, scarcely a single incident of any kind connected with the apostles preaching in Galatia should be preserved in either the history or the epistle, end quote. So he saw it. There's an absence. It's very strange. The absence is also strange because this letter was among Paul's most significant stack. And the problem facing the Galatians was serious. We would expect that there would be mention of people and places. So what's the alternative? Well, there is another possibility for the meaning of Galatia in Acts 16.26, and it became the prevailing view, actually, among scholars soon into the 1900s. It's called the South Galatia theory, and it has much to commend it. It argues that Paul's ministry was really to the inhabitants of Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe, cities that were incorporated into Galatia after the Romans expanded it southward 
The inhabitants of of these Galatian cities were not Gauls, nor were they ethnically related to the Gauls. But because they lived in the southernmost part of that province, they were called Galatians. There was no other name for them. So Paul mentions numerous places and individuals from this region, which we would expect. And the trade route went right through this region, and the ailing Paul wouldn't have to go out of his way to get to them. (coughs) Of the two possibilities... Then the South Galatian theory makes the best sense and is the one, of course, I assume going forward in our study of this letter. Well, is this an example of an educated guess on the finer points? Yes, it is. Does it make a difference to the message of the letter as to which one you hold? No, it doesn't affect the main thrust of the letter, but it does affect how one dates the book and interprets certain passages in the letter. Let me prove this to you as we turn to the time Paul wrote this letter, or the date. Those who hold the North Galatian theory date this letter late, some very late, anywhere from AD 52 to AD 57, around about the time that Paul wrote Romans. Now, they argue that Paul wouldn't have had time to venture miles north to ethnic Galatia, plant churches there with such a a tight uh, itinerary for his first missionary journey, his first visit to Galatia, and then had to wait, really, to establish churches there on his second missionary journey, which would be his second visit to them, before he would then be able to write to them something during maybe the third missionary journey. Now, to support this, they go to Galatians 4.13. All right? We have one visit he made, first missionary journey, second visit he makes to Galatia, establishing churches there, second missionary journey, third missionary journey, he writes the letter. That's the idea. They support this idea from Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, as they say, which they which they allude, um, which they believe alludes to these two visits, these distinct visits, one in his first missionary journey and one in the second. The New American Standard translation of Galatians 4.13 kind of lends to this idea. It says, but you know that it was because of the, a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. The first time. There are some English translations that go so far to translate that phrase, one of the first, I'm sorry, on the first of two visits. Now, the problem here is that the Greek phrase translated the first time was a figure of speech in Paul's day that simply meant in the past or previously, as the Christian Standard Bible that we read from here in the morning has. And it cannot be used to prove two distinct missionary visits. Galatians 4.13 is likely referring to Paul's initial visit visit to Galatia at the beginning of his first missionary journey, and then a second visit to Galatia on the same journey when he retraces his steps on his way home through the churches of Galatia to strengthen them. Here's how Luke puts it in Acts 14. 
After they, that's Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to the to that city and had made a good number of disciples, that would be in Derby, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith. Those are the churches or the cities of Galatia in the south. And Paul saw them twice on his first missionary journey. So Paul could very well have written Galatians then between his first and second missionary journey. What else? Well, a major issue when it comes to dating Galatians is whether Paul wrote before or after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. The North Galatian theory argues that Paul wrote long after the council, and many proponents of this view believe that Paul mentions the council's decision in Galatians chapter 2, actually Paul's own account of how the council went. The problem with seeing Galatians 2 as Paul's account of the Jerusalem council visit is that we know that Paul, uh, we know that one, the Jerusalem council visit, to be Paul's third visit to Jerusalem, not his second one. In uh, In chapter 1, verse 18 of Galatians, Paul says that he went up to Jerusalem three years after his conversion. That's visit number one. Then, in chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 1, he says again, after 14 years, he went up again. That's visit number 2. It's this visit that the North Galatian theory identifies as the Jerusalem council visit. But Paul attended that council on his third visit to Jerusalem, not his second one. Okay, so what, you may be asking. Well, Paul professes in Galatians 1 and 2 to provide a complete chronology of his visits to Jerusalem, of which we know at the time of his writing this letter, there were only two. His first visit three years after his conversion, that we read about in Acts 9.26, and his famine relief visit, that he mentions in Acts 11, verses 28 to 30. If the North Galatian theory sees this second visit, not as the famine visit, but as the Jerusalem council visit, which we know was really his third visit, then that would mean Paul purposely left out one visit in his account in Galatians chapters 1 and 2, and that would have left left him open to the charge of fudging the record. So it makes much better sense to see Galatians 2 as referring to Paul's famine visit mentioned in Acts 11, his second visit to Jerusalem after 14 years, when he brought money from Gentile churches to the church of Jerusalem. Paul says in Galatians 2.2, I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. Now, the revelation that he's referring to here may very well have been a revelation God gave to him personally, but if not, then it would have been the one that Agabus, the prophet, received, recorded in Acts 11, verses 27 to 30. Agabus told the church at Antioch that a famine was coming, 
which prompted the elders of Antioch to round up relief money from the churches and send it to Jerusalem with Paul and Barnabas. More proof that Galatians 2 is talking about the famine visit and not the Jerusalem council visit is this. Paul said that he met privately with esteemed leaders on this visit. But the council was a public meeting to the church at large. Paul says that he took Titus along with him, but Titus is never mentioned in Acts 15. Also, Paul says that these leaders, namely James and Peter and John, recognized that God had commissioned Paul to go to the Gentiles as he did Peter to go to the Jews and encouraged him. Well, the interact, that interaction is nowhere mentioned in the Jerusalem Council meeting of Acts 15. And finally, Paul makes no mention in Galatians 2 of the Jerusalem Council's agreed-upon stipulations that they wrote in a letter. But he does mention that James, Peter, and John asked him in, a, in their private meeting with him to remember the poor which was not mentioned in the Jerusalem letter and which Paul was also eager to do. So the South Galatian theory, which makes the best sense, puts the date of Galatians right around the time of the Jerusalem council, and I would argue that he wrote it just before he went to the council in Acts 15. First, if Paul wrote after the council... Why didn't he mention it in Galatians, you see? He, he would have. And we already argue that his description of, uh, of, a, of a meeting in chapter 2 is not that visit. It is also odd, then, that he doesn't mention it, since the council's verdict would have only strengthened his argument. In connection with that, and second, it makes more sense to also place Peter's brief public display of hypocrisy in Galatia before the Council of Jerusalem, since it's unlikely that Peter would have acted that way after he championed Paul's view of the gospel, along with James and the others at the Council. In other words, Peter's weakest moment would have certainly been before, not after the Jerusalem Council. Therefore, seeing that the Jerusalem Council is dated around A.D. 48, that is also the date of Galatians. And this letter may very well be the first letter Paul ever wrote. So we know that Paul wrote a letter, a very personal and powerful letter to the churches of South Galatia, shortly after his first missionary journey, but before the Jerusalem Council. The only other aspect we need to consider, then, is the occasion of the letter. Why did Paul write such a letter? Such an important letter at that. After he and Barnabas evangelized the South Galatian region and saw converts during their first missionary journey, they planted churches there. The churches were predominantly Gentile, as you can imagine, with a small percentage of Jews mixed in. Once they left, Jews who claimed to be Christians from the Church of Jerusalem, infiltrated their ranks, as Paul said they had done in other churches. Now, we mustn't think of something like a military invasion where these guys bullied the church members into adopting a certain position. Oh, no, it was much more subtle than that. Paul uses the word infiltrated in Galatians 2.4, which has the idea 
to bring in something secretly, to smuggle something in, and to join under false pretenses. Interesting word. This tells us a lot. They no doubt were welcomed as brothers because they seemed genuine and perhaps claimed to be bringing great teaching from Jerusalem. Well, come on in. Who knows exactly what they claim, but they were wily in their approach and deceived the fledgling churches into believing that anyone who embraced Christ as a Gentile must also submit to the law of Moses and be circumcised or else they're not genuine Christians. Hmm. Doesn't sound too good. Who were these guys? Well, they were a specific group of Jews who considered themselves Christian in that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They would tell you that. But they also taught that Gentiles who wanted to be in covenant relationship with God also needed to submit to the requirements of the Old Covenant, especially circumcision. In essence, a works-based religion. You know, faith plus works. In this way, they saw Christianity only as a modified Judaism. In essence, they were false teachers, and they didn't work alone. Now, most likely, they had a ringleader. Paul refers to him in chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 10. He says, the one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. As I say, it doesn't sound good, does it? Paul mentions them among other false teachers in Colossians 2. He wrote the entire second letter of Corinthians to defend his apostleship against such people. They told the Corinthians that they were the true apostles and that Paul was a phony. He presents them in the worst possible light. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul calls them dogs, evil workers, false circumcision. Paul says that of those who infiltrated Galatia, they disturbed the body of Christ with their distorted gospel. They are disingenuous and hypocritical. They should be accursed, and they face God's sure judgment. Now, according to their track record throughout the New Testament, they were very influential. New Testament scholars have a name for them, a name for this particular group of false teachers. It is Judaizers. Now, that title isn't used in anywhere in the New Testament, in case you're interested, it most likely, though, comes from Paul's reference to Peter's act of, mis of, of making Gentiles into Jews. And you're wondering, well, where was that? In Galatians chapter 2.14, when Paul confronted Peter to his face publicly, he said to him, How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? There's the word. That whole clause is one word in Greek. The verb is to force someone to follow Jewish customs, to conform a Gentile to Mosaic rules and practices, to make a Jew out of a Gentile, hence to Judaize them. And Jews who did that were Judaizers. Although Peter was not a Judaizer, he was acting like one when he sided with them on this particular occasion. And in Acts 6, Paul speaks of their wicked motives that reveal them to be apostate. 
In the first place, Paul says in verse 12 that they couldn't care less about the Galatians, but were only out for their own reputation and really wanted to avert any persecution. He says in verse 12, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So they were more concerned with impressions, not with spiritual truth, and they wanted to avert Roman persecution for being associated with this newfound religion, which hadn't received sanction from the empire yet, as Judaism had. If that weren't enough, Paul also charges them with hypocrisy in the next verse, verse 13. Not even those who are circumcised can keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Those who are circumcised don't keep the law, he says. So these guys were no good. They were deceiving because they claimed faith in Jesus as Messiah while at the same time taught adherence to the law of Moses. They were certainly among the most pernicious enemies of the cross. So where did they come from? Well, Paul gives us some indication in Galatians 2 verse 12. Certain men came from James. Now we shouldn't think that these men are born again or that James supported them, much less much less even sent them. James was the head of the Jerusalem church, as you know. So to say that they came from James is another way of saying that they came from the Jerusalem church. But Paul specifically calls them false believers in verse 4, who had infiltrated the ranks of one of the churches that Paul had established early on, as he put it, to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. He identifies them in verse 12 as those who belong to the circumcision group. And we have an example from Acts 15 of this infiltration, or this, these infiltrators, I should say, and what they are teaching. Acts 15 verse 1, Luke records this, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. The council's decision, backed by Peter and James and John and Paul and Barnabas, also makes clear that they in no way associated with these infiltrators or supported their, their false teaching. Rather, they warned the churches in their letter to them, verse, uh, Acts 15, verse 24, Council letter reads in part, We have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have confused you by their teaching, upsetting your souls. So these Jewish counterfeit Christians came from the Jerusalem church, but neither as, as representatives nor as its spokesmen. They were not true believers, and as I mentioned, they did not represent the view of Peter and James and John and the other leaders with them, nor of the core group of the Jerusalem church, who obviously believed in the correct gospel, and that the old covenant was made obsolete by the new covenant, as the writer of the Hebrews makes very clear. We know this much because the elders of the Jerusalem council rallied for the right gospel, one of 
Pure grace, not works. But there's another side to this context. The body of genuine believers in Galatia, in the Galatian churches, swallowed the Judaizers' heresy, hook, line, and singer, and put themselves in danger of straying from the Lord and his word that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we know Paul wrote a letter, a very personal and powerful letter to the churches of South Galatia, shortly after his first missionary journey, but just before the Jerusalem Council, because the Galatians had embraced the error that the Judaizers presented to them as the true gospel and in the name of Jesus. That last part of the equation is what distinguishes this letter from the other 12 uh, letters that Paul wrote. And it's the scariest part. Why do I say that? Because it preserves for us in holy writ, for our instruction and for our good, something that is still unbelievable every time we hear it. You know, we know that the church will always battle falsely. We, we know that. That slams against the church from, from, the, from outside of it, like humanism. We're seeing it now with the redefinition of marriage and gender and unborn children and true love, guilt and sin and God himself. Stuff like that swirling around the church, always swirling and slamming against the outside walls of the church, coming from humanism. We, we expect that. And really, we also know and expect there to be false teachers and heresy inside the church that spreads like gangrene which is sadder and more deceptive and trickier to deal with. We accept that and we recognize it, we anticipate it. But what is astounding is the fact that genuine born-again believers will welcome it, embrace it, even champion it. I'm reminded of the progression of compromise that David talks about in Psalm 1. You know that one? There are those in the church, beloved, who are truly redeemed, but might walk in the way of the wicked for a time. They walk in the way of the wicked to the point where the error that they learn from the wicked helps them temporarily and emboldens them then to stand in the way of sinners because they honestly believe that the error they embrace and that has helped them is really God's truth. has to be if it works. Taking a stand means that they become champions of it. So they have championed error. They defend it, guard it, celebrate it, propagate it, and regurgitate it all over the church to the point where they sit in the seat of mockers, which means that they now sit in judgment over what is true and what is false and find sound doctrine to be false and error to be true and repudiate the true doctrine which they think is false and celebrate the error which they now think is true. We don't know if the Galatian church ever got to that point 
It would seem unlikely from Luke's account of Paul's missionary journeys that it did, but we know that they can. As the six of the seven churches in Asia, listed in Revelation 1 and 2, proves. They were on the precipice. They were ready to fold. God was ready to remove their witness from the earth because of what they embraced. Now, as we close our study, and we've got part three coming, I want us to go with this thought in our minds. The Galatians were responsible for their actions and held accountable for believing error. Otherwise, Paul would not have rebuked them. Oh, it's not your fault. You were, you were tricked. No. No, they were deceived, yes. They were bewitched, yes. But they should have known better. And Paul rebukes them. They may have been sweet-talked by winsome and diplomatic false teachers, but at the end of the day, Paul holds the Galatians responsible for courting error. He may have cursed their enemies, but he firmly rebukes the Galatians. All the more reason when we ourselves need to be, we need to be up on our doctrine, beloved. We need to know, uh, know it as precise or precisely as possible uh, as everything else that's meaningful to us in our lives. That's how we need to know our theology. It should be as familiar to us as our knowledge of our own businesses and as easy to recall as our social security numbers and our addresses and those of our close friends and our medication regimen that's more detailed for some of us than others and other complicated duties that we execute daily without even thinking. Those things I just mentioned are proof that you can learn and recall and use detailed information that you need to live and work and survive, right? So we have no excuse not to know God's word this way. The doctrines of our faith, the ones we recite every Sunday, Every Lord's Day, we open our mouths and recite our confession, parts of our confession. We, have a, we need to have a firm theological grid that sifts out error that presents itself to us in truth's clothes and arms us also at the same time to fight the good fight. False teachers come and go. So do movements in the Christian faith that start out with the best of intentions and ultimately go the way of all flesh. Beloved, I'm not that old, but I am old enough to have seen many movements that people esteemed come and go. It's easy to get confused by false teachers and sucked into the fads and movements of American Christianity. But at the end of the day, we will have no one to blame but ourselves. So says Paul to the Galatians. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Implication? It's obvious. If you are wise in the wisdom of God, then you won't be deceived. It's as simple as that. And our Father and God, we are grateful for your goodness to us. 
and that you have preserved this truth down through the centuries that we might know it and learn it, that we might absorb it and live it for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. Find us, we pray, meditating upon these truths and being ever so diligent to to thirst for your truth, to eat and ingest your words as the prophets of old did, knowing that they are healthy and good and sound for us, spiritually and otherwise. Let us never be deterred from our, our hunger for your truth and for its application, that we might run well and then we might see you face to face and embrace you and receive your compliment, which is enough to motivate us now to run well. We thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.